Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. For this week's CIO Strategy Snapshot, we will be turning our focus to how the market environment might evolve over the course of the second half of 2023 by highlighting the Chief Investment Office's second half outlook note, Balancing Act. Joining me here in studio, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So, Jason, first off, great to have you back here with us, joining us in studio in 1285 Avenue of the Americas. A welcome back and looking forward to getting into our conversation. It's good to be here, Dan, in person again. Absolutely. So, uh, Jason, as I pointed out, you are here today to talk about the Chief Investment Office's second half outlook for 2023. And this actually ties into the House View monthly letter. Balancing Act is the title. We'll get into what that means a bit more in our conversation. But you think about the first six months of 2023, so much has taken place, a lot that we did not really anticipate heading into the year. So maybe that's a good starting point before we spend time on out outlining scenarios for the second half of the year. Jason, can you begin by recapping for us how the first half of 2023 played out relative to performance expectations back in January and what the market environment looks like today? Well, it hasn't played out as most people expected. Uh, The consensus view at the start of the year was that it'd be a difficult first half for the economy and a better second half. And so far, certainly the economy has held up better than expected. One of the consequences is that it's also been a better you know, first half in terms of market performance. I think sort of similar or kind of based off of that that more challenging first half outlook, again, the consensus view is that you know the risk is more for equities to sell off. And then as the macro picture improved, they would start to rally. Instead, we here are here on the middle of June and the S&P 500 is up 13 plus percent kind of year to date. Uh, other asset classes have also done well. So it's been a good year. Uh, for multi-asset portfolios uh, or like, you know, a kind of a standard you know, stock bond portfolio, 50-50 is up about 7% year to date, which is a nice uh, kind of recovery after last year where it was a really difficult market kind of across the board. So the overall performance is certainly better than expected. Uh, but it's also, when we talk about the market, it's important to differentiate that in some way it depends on where you look because in some way it's been a f- absolutely fantastic market for, you know, a few stocks like these mega cap, you know, tech stocks that are up on average like over, you know, 40%. You know, some cases like, you know, you know NVIDIA is up 170%. So you group those seven together and you see, you know, the NASDAQ 100 is up 37%. Uh, so fantastic performance there. If you take those seven stocks out of the S&P 500, the total return is more like three to four percent. So a tale of two markets, really. It, it really is, you know, like it's almost like there's a haves and a haves not to some extent. Right. So I think that when we look at the average, the average is very misleading because normally you get more of a normal distribution. Like this year, it's almost, you know, like extreme on one end and then everything else kind of clumped, you know, you know, to the other end, which is an important context as we get into like thinking about like, you know, the outlook, you know, from here. But that's really been, you know, the story kind of better than expected, but also two kind of very divergent kind of, you know, markets, you know, overall. Where we are kind of in terms of the, the situation right now, it, it kind of goes back to the expectations of a more challenging first half of recession by the first half of this year. We're not in a recession right now. And, and almost every day that goes by, expectations for at least when a recession can materialize get pushed further out. So we're seeing you know, the economy hold up better than expected. And even the most recent data that we've got on retail sales, import prices are consistent with that sort of soft landing kind of you know, narrative. Uh, you know, a week ago, I did a, a blog titled, you know, Disinflation or Resilient. Like what we spoke about on the snapshot, I recall. We did that. Um, 
And th- those are sort of like, you know, to me, two leading contenders for kind of word of the year in finance. Disinflation sort of, you know, is happening. That's helping to drive markets. But in some way, the real story is just the resiliency of kind of growth, the labor market, consumer spending. And that's ultimately reflected in the asset class performance year to date. Now that we have a better understanding as to how conditions have evolved over the first half of the year, and as mentioned, we're now making our way into the second half of 2023, maybe we can turn our focus a bit and talk about CIO's expectations for the second half. Now, CIO believes that investors are faced with a balancing act as to how market conditions and as a result, returns might evolve through year end. So, Jason, what has to happen in order for equity markets to keep going higher from current levels? Well, in the uh, monthly letter, we identify three factors that we think investors would sort of need to see to get comfortable and believe that equities are going to keep kind of going higher, maybe not at the pace they have in the first half of this year, but directionally going up. Uh, and for, I think foremost among them is that there doesn't have to be a recession or we have to avoid a recession. Uh, and increasingly, that's kind of become you know the view that uh, uh, that we could get a soft landing or at a minimum, a delayed recession and a mild recession. So I think that's kind of one of the features. Uh, a second is that the Fed doesn't really kind of do much more in terms of hikes than what's already kind of priced in the market. Uh, and the third factor is the AI story, their artificial intelligence story, which if I were to have like the third candidate of like the word of the year, right. aside from disinflation and resilient, it would be AI. A lot of buzz. A lot of buzz, you know, a very kind of narrative-driven story with, with justification. Sure. But I think for, for the markets to keep going higher, I'd say this, let's call it AI hype, has to be more fact than fiction. Uh, and so I think you kind of need, you know, all those things to kind of hold up for, for equity markets to keep going higher. Just going back to the first one on this sort of, you know, recession, this sort of dovetails to my kind of opening comments that one of the surprising developments this year has been the fact that the U.S. economy has held up better than expected. And there's some moderation, but it's whole, you know, even the most recent data suggests the consumer is still willing to spend. Uh, we're seeing now a recovery in real wages. So the May CPI print was, you know, uh, 4%. Mm-hmm. Wage growth is is over four percent. That means you know you know you're getting positive real after inflation income, uh, and that's ha- on a year over year basis. And this is now about two months in a row that we've had that. That will continue as headline inflation is going to fall and fall probably pretty rapidly over the next couple of months, mm-hmm. to the point where when we get the July data in early August, headline inflation could be as low as you know two to two and a half percent. So again, that gives the consumer more spending power. That can also elongate how this recovery, you know, kind of continues on. So I think those are sort of the positive you know, factors. It's not without risks. Uh, you know, we don't know how much you know credit can get you know tight. How much the the what the Fed has done thus far, how much that might ultimately weigh on economic activity. We know that monetary acts with a kind of long and sort of somewhat uncertain leg. So it's quite possible that the Fed has already done enough to cause a recession, even though we haven't seen it, or maybe it has to do more. But like that, that's you know, kind of, sort of an uncertain outcome. But I think ultimately, especially because investors increasingly are kind of getting more optimistic on a soft landing or at worst, a mild recession. Uh, I even saw someone this morning say, I suggest it'd be a growth recession, meaning you know, we might have a contraction of GDP, but the unemployment rate would barely rise. So if that's the case, I, mean, I think most people would take that as a, as a recession. 
So we know how big of a role the Fed has played in market activity, investor sentiment over the past six months. Maybe we can take a few moments to examine the Fed's policy course and this coming off last week's Fed policy meeting. They did, in fact, skip a rate hike at that June meeting. Officials had also indicated that additional rate hikes are on the table for 2023. So, Jason, what should investors expect the Fed to do from here and how might that, as a result, impact the market outlook. It was expected the Fed would pause, especially after we got the uh, the May CPI data on Tuesday that came in line with expectations, so not an overly hot print, enough for the Fed to be able to, with some justification, say we, we need to, to pause, or at least they can sort of make that case. Uh, so that was, was expected. It was also expected the Fed would raise its uh, dot median dot plot meaning you know among the FOMC committee members each gives an expectation of where they think the Fed funds rate will end at the year uh, be at year end that median went up equivalent of two full rate hikes that sort of thing was a little bit surprising initially right. to the markets and the equity markets didn't like that initially the equity markets the S&P was down about 1% when that came out right at 2 p.m. Right. and there was a half an hour from 2 p.m. release to the 2:30 start of the press conference with with Jer- um, chair Powell so the initial reaction was the Fed is trying to be hawkish. And this is sort of, I think we talked about like the idea of a hawkish skip. Sure. So that was in the in the dot plot. As uh, Powell started kind of giving his comments and asked, asking or answering questions, I think one of the key takeaways though is while he was adamant about, you know, the July meeting is live, meaning like we could hike, mm-hmm. but no decision has been made. But also when pressed, he'd say like, you know, we're still assessing. So he wouldn't give like guidance to say it's very likely we'll hike unless something happens. So it's, you know, July, the data right now sort of would warrant potentially hike. It seems likely they would hike, and that's what the market is pricing. But because he wasn't adamant about it, it also kind of left open some interpretation that maybe the Fed's trying to be hawkish, but it didn't quite come off as hawkish as expected. And an easy way to see it is if you look at what the market was pricing for rate hikes the rest of this year and cuts potentially at the end of the year, before the decision came out and after, it was relatively unchanged. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you took out any sort of probability of a hike this time, obviously shifted it into July and September, but the total amount is still less than one full hike. So the market kind of is kind of taking the Fed of with like, you know, we don't really believe it right now. We don't think you're going to do that. There's a bigger question we can debate about whether, you know, is that reasonable or not? Is did the Fed make a mistake in terms of should they have hiked given the, the economic conditions? I think we need to put this in context of the Fed, like investors, has become very data dependent. Think about the beginning of May at the last OMC meeting, the Fed hiked 25 basis points. They changed their language in a way that was interpreted, and I think they tried to signal this way, that June was probably a pause, uh, some possibility, but probably a pause. So, uh, And the market at that point in time was pricing in less than 10% probability of any more rate hikes. By the time we got to a week before this meeting, five weeks later, the market was pricing in about a 90% chance of a hike, if not now or in July. And that was all a result of economic data coming in stronger, uh, the banking situation getting stabilized, the debt ceiling, at least meaning no additional stress in the banking system, the debt ceiling get resolved. It's quite possible over the next six weeks until the next FOMC meeting that the data could continue to come in strong. We still have a jobs report coming up. We have uh, all the June data that will come out. So the jobs report, the inflation report, if the data comes out such that inflation is surprising at the downside, uh, maybe the Fed says we we need to or could pause. It, given that they only have one month of data and given that they could have justified a hike this time, the fact that core inflation is still over 5%, I think the logical thing to assume is that they will hike in July. 
but the next meeting is not until mid-September. They will have two more months of data or three from now to kind of make that full assessment. And what Powell did sort of imply is that they want to take a more measured pace, which some people would assume maybe they go to kind of a quarterly basis. So kind of let's say April, May, end of July, end of October, something along those kind of that, that sort of timeline. But really, I think it sort of depends on how the data evolves from here. And that ultimately kind of goes back to the why I think the recession issue is kind of the foremost important thing for the markets. Because if the data evolves in a way that we get continued disinflation and resilient growth, soft landing looks more likely. The Fed maybe doesn't have to do more hikes. Um, they kind of ride it out and then gradually kind of squeeze out inflation or, or hope to squeeze out inflation over the next couple of years and get closer to the target by the end of 2025, which is their updated projections. So we can kind of, you know, micro assess all the outcomes. But I think, you know, three weeks from now, four weeks from now, the economic data could sort of warrant a different view of what the Fed should do. So I think we should kind of think big picture. Fed's almost done. One or two more hikes, not going to make a huge difference to the outlook versus the economic data. So if we switch gears for a moment, just acknowledging how 2023 has thus far delivered a lot of buzz surrounding the evolution and adoption of artificial intelligence, AI, by companies, which has resulted in some standout performance within certain areas of tech. How is CIO Jason thinking about current valuations and what potential exists for AI, artificial intelligence, becoming a longer term contributor to growth? Well, in terms of just valuations and performance, the um, there's an index, the NYSE FANG Plus Index, that tracks the top 10 U.S. tech stocks. It is up 75% year-to-date, so that gives you some perspective. Uh, if we take the S&P 500 sort of, you know, kind of uh, return, again, like around 14%, uh, seven stocks, these sort of, we call them the seven surging stocks, um, they account for almost 12% of that 13-plus percent return. The, the rest of the market is about 3%. That's pretty telling. It's, so it gives you an idea like just how phenomenally these, these companies have done. As a result, their valuations, again, have got relatively elevated. Uh, if we think of not just the U.S., but this is going to, you know, the U.S. You know, companies are going to dominate the MSCI all-country world technology sector. Um, it's trading at a 25% premium to its average P multiple over the past decade, which, you know, keep in mind, it's been a decade of those stocks doing really well. Sure. And now we're even above that, that kind of average over the past decade. So the valuations are are elevated, uh, debatable, you know, if they're really expensive or not, because it ultimately comes down, can they produce the earnings? And so this comes again to the question like, well, what's the actual kind of economic impact? What's the earnings impact on that? And I think it's pretty clear and safe to say that, you know, already within, uh, just over six months, because ChatGPT was in, uh, released, I believe it was November 30th. Mm-hmm. So let's say six and a half months. You know, it already has over 200 million users globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the rate of adoption compared to other sort of, you know, kind of social media or technology platforms is far faster. Uh, and you're already seeing a variety of different types of businesses, especially information services, professional services, taking advantage of it. So I think no one really disputes that this is a significant technology that can really be used to help move the needle for businesses in different ways. What's more kind of questionable is the earnings impact across the entire market. Can it actually lift earnings for more than just a handful of big tech companies? Um, can other companies deploy in a way that makes them more productive and efficient, uh, reduces their costs? And and how the answer is probably yes, but can that happen in the next couple of quarters? It's a small sampling size at the moment. It's a very, I mean, this has happened so quickly. We just, we literally almost don't like have maybe a quarter of data. Uh, and we'll start to get more information as we move forward, but it's going to take not a month or two, but like at least a few quarters for this to play out. Then the bigger question, like sort of for the economy overall, we know that it could be 
labor-enhancing, make workers more productive. It could also displace workers who right. now – is it uh, is that a net positive? Is it disinflationary? You know, there's definitely a discussion and debate is could this save the cycle? Could it help bring inflation down in a way that allow the Fed to not hike? I think the dispersion of the technology is not going to be quickly enough to have that kind of impact in the next couple of quarters before either the Fed keeps going or we already know the answer that actually the Fed doesn't have to go anymore. So a lot of it, it clearly it's relevant. I think in terms of then the kind of the uh, kind of the opportunity or the way to think about it is that there is it's more than you know you know just hype. There's a reality to it, right. uh, and we know from past kind of you know, you know situations like the dot com you know you know. Uh, boom and then ultimately bubble and then late right. 1990s that people can talk for many quarters or for a couple of years saying like, this can't go on and it goes on mm-hmm. uh, and historically when you get these situations it can take a few you know quarters at a minimum before the narrative changes which means when we think about the market dynamic it's unlikely to suddenly in the next month or so people become you know tired of ai or you're going to get a big reversal it's more a question can this continue in a significant way or could there be, be at least to be a bit of a pause when companies, some of those companies report Q2 earnings by roughly the end of July, could they kind of you know, tell investors, actually, you're, you're getting a little over your skis in terms of what you're assuming? So there could be some, definitely some shifts, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's hard to predict with any sort of confidence how this exactly will, will, will play out, even more so than you know, the, the economic fundamentals, which are already kind of difficult enough to predict. Well, as we have seen, AI is a rapidly evolving technology. It is here to stay. So do look forward to having some follow-up conversations to see how this story evolves and its impact to various sectors and the broader economy. So as we begin to wrap up our conversation today, Jason, maybe let's tie your earlier commentary around the potential market macro scenarios into positioning. So what are some allocation considerations that investors should be mindful of for the second half of 2023. So we can see and think from the macro environment, it's better than we anticipated at the start of the year. That goes back to the opening comments. And even over the past few months, I'd say the the distribution of outcomes for the US economy has improved. The downside risks have been reduced. You know, the debt ceiling was lifted, it's been resolved. The banking stress that surfaced in March, you know, it's it's kind of maybe similar in the background, but it certainly hasn't boiled over and it doesn't look like that's going to be kind of really being constrained on the economy in, in the near term, like in a significant way. Uh, and the fact that inflation is now coming down or continues to come down while growth is resilient, again, it makes a soft landing or very mild recession more and more kind of a plausible. So that's all good news. The issue is that for equity markets overall, a lot of that's kind of priced in, at least at the broad kind of market level, which is why when we think about our asset class preferences, if you ask me, you know, 12 months from now, do you see a better return, risk-adjusted return for high-quality bonds, like investment-grade corporate bonds that are yielding 5.5%, or the S&P 500, I think that's a better risk reward right now for that sort of marginal dollar in the in the bonds that are going to give me that 5.5% versus our price target for next June was upgraded to 4,400, which is basically where we are right now. So yes, the outlook has improved, but the markets have already priced it in, which means when you look at equities at a broad market level, it's kind of an underwhelming kind of you know, story for like, well, in terms of the upside sure. for the S&P. Now, going back to some of the, the comments at the start about it's been a tale of two markets this year, one of the consequences of that is there are large parts of the market, like 493 stocks, to be specific, that are only up on average or collectively 3%. They've lagged. So one of the you know kind of messages we have this month is to look for equity laggards. So while buying quality bonds kind of reflects the message that's consistent with kind of liking bonds over equities overall, 
in equities, there are opportunities and kind of just the bottom line, the kind of the alliteration is like, look for equity laggards. Uh, and these are really, you know, the parts of the market that have underperformed, you know, those seven stocks. Uh, this includes, you know, sectors like energy, which we upgraded to most preferred. One thing we like, and I think a nice way to sort of allocate in equities right now is to look to equal weighted indices. So again, the equal weighted S&P 500 has lagged the overall S&P by 10 percentage points in the past about three and a half months since the beginning of March. That level of underperformance in three months is highly unusual. The only other time in the past decade plus that we've seen that is in March of 2020 when the pandemic hit. It can underperform, but not that large. So usually there's almost like some kind of mean reversion. It kind of snaps back. The idea also behind it is that you're buying the stuff that is more reasonably valued. If the economy ends up soft-funding, the stuff that's going to perform well, it'd be the more cyclical value things uh, that have lagged that have a bounce back potential. And we've already seen that in June as the markets become more confident about that possibility. Small caps have rallied, value stocks have done well, energy stocks. So those are areas that look kind of relatively attractive. And certainly the letter and other material will kind of align more specific ideas. So that's kind of how we're we're thinking about it. And the only other thing I'd say it's sort of, you know, up, up on the equity front is there are also opportunities outside of the US. You know, we've liked emerging markets which have underperformed. Uh, but if the global economy looks a little bit better, they should also benefit. You know, even Chinese equities that have really been the drag with an EM, there's signs now of some policy response there. It may not take much uh, given how cheap Chinese equities have gotten to help lift them and also as a result help lift emerging markets. So that's something that we like in terms of international equities tilting to EM that is lagged, that has a potential to kind of really catch up, especially if China does any sort of decent sized stimulus. Well, Jason, thank you again for dropping by the studio to keep our listeners, our clients informed on CIO's thinking as we make our way into the second half of 2023. Appreciate the guidance when it comes to positioning and do look forward to keeping in touch and having follow-up conversations with you on the market environment as the balance of the year progresses. Though, Jason, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it, as always. You're welcome. For our listeners and clients of UBS, I do want to point out that the Chief Investment Office's second half outlook publication title is Balancing Act, as well as the latest UBS Houseview Investment Strategy Guide and monthly letter are available on UBS.com slash CIO. For clients of UBS, simply reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive copies of these resources directly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.